just turn the videos off. Like I'm just going to do as well. Um, and the meeting is now being recorded. So David, I'm handing over to you now, if that's OK. Thanks, Nanika. I hope Please everyone like can see. see. It does say yeah. I can take control. Should I try and take control? Well, let, let me I'll try um, that. Yeah. Give right, it a go, I can take control. Does that mean I can now control it? Oh, I can. Can I? Whoa, Whoa yeah. look at that. <laughs> <laughs> can you see me as well? What can you see? Now, I don't know I, what. I can, I can see you and I can see your slides. It, it's as if we planned it this way, Tim. Well, this is, it was very carefully thought through. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, let me um, welcome you all to the seminar and uh, let me uh, uh, welcome Tim Allen. Uh, today, uh, as you will know, I'm sure Tim is a professor of development anthropology at uh, the Department of International Development at the LSE. Um, he's also the inaugural director of the Firoz Lalji uh, for Africa there. Tim's carried out long term uh, field research in um, many African countries, uh, particularly in East Africa, and writes prolifically uh, across a range of, of fields from poverty and development, conflict and humanitarianism and emergencies and disease and you'll of course inca have encountered his publications um, trial justice the international criminal court and the lord's resistance army and uh, more recently the lord's resistance army myth and reality with kern vlasenroot amongst many other publications tim's scholarship then has a particular focus on uganda um, and he's a long he has a long-standing interest in the history of knowledge about those groups of people living on the Sudan-Uganda border, like the Acholi, which brings us to today's talk um, and to what we'd originally discussed um, as a book launch for Luino's people, um, the Acholi of Uganda, which, as I'm sure he'll go on to explain, is a reprinting of the by the uh, International African Institute, and it's uh, lovely to see many of the publications committee here. Um, in their Classics of uh, African Anthropology series of theses and other works um, by Okot Pitek and Frank Gerling. So without further ado, uh, let me hand over to Tim, um, who's speaking today to the title Colonial Encounters in Acholiland and Oxford, the Anthropology of F.K. Gerling and Okot Pitek. Tim, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. Um, thanks very much for asking me. Just so I know before I start, how long should I speak for? About an hour, a bit less, something like like that. Is up that up okay? to an hour, be up to an hour, be fabulous. Thanks. Okay, super. Um, well, I thought I would talk um, about um, these two anthropologists, but also kind of set them in a slightly wider context. And as David has mentioned, I worked in this part of Africa for quite a long time. I initially was a my, my first experience of this area was working as a teacher, in fact, in a in a school just across the border in what's now South Sudan, uh, in the Acholi area of South Sudan. It's my first experience of the Acholi people. Um, this is a part of Africa that has had a horrendous history. Um, when I was in, first working there in the 1980s, um, it, the, the situation in, 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 in Uganda had been affected by the, you know, the whole series of upheavals. Um, 
And in fact, when I went back to try and start writing a PhD thesis um, in, uh, in the mid-1980s, um, I, I had hoped to go and work among the Acholi people, but in the end, because of the security situation on the Ugandan side of the border, had to do my PhD thesis on, on the Mahdi. Um, but nevertheless, I continued to, whenever I could, go across on my motorbike into the areas that are red on this map and, and visit parts of Acholi area. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what happened, um, the, the current, I can say it's, I would say current violence, but I mean it's now, it, it, it's now abated to a very considerable degree. The, the violence that, 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 that occurred from the, from the kind of mid to late 1980s onwards was associated with President Museveni seizing power in Kampala in 1986. Now, Museveni's forces have been relatively well disciplined while fighting in the south of the country, but as they moved north and encountered veterans from previous Ugandan armies, I think it's fair to say that the discipline of the National Resistance Movement, um, Resistance Army, broke down to some extent, and atrocities against civilians, as well as the mobilisation of the former veterans, led to a guerrilla war. Um, which has persisted in different forms um, for a very long time. Initially, it was a fairly conventional kind of war, but then during 1986, something really remarkable happened, that large numbers of people covered in oil walked towards the uh, National Resistance Army uh, installations and um, often naked, singing hymns um, and uh, throwing rocks, which people say turned into grenades. Um, they appeared to be totally terrifying, and many of Museveni's young soldiers ran away. Now, that movement was led by a woman known as Alice Auma, Alakwena, the messenger, and she had become possessed by spirits and led them in a crusade against Museveni. Eventually, she was, um, her forces were pinned down uh, to the east of Jinja. I remember I was in Jinja at the time. And the Ugandan army surrounded them, and they largely wiped them out, though Alice Auma, the messenger, the Lakwena, escaped into Kenya. However, a relative of hers continued the struggle in the north, and his name was Joseph Connie. And Connie's Lord's Resistance Army has been one of the most persistent terrorist organizations operating in Africa. And terrorism seems to be a reasonable term because Connie's forces did truly astonishingly awful things to people to create the maximum terror effects. For many, many years, these appalling upheavals in northern Uganda went largely unnoticed by most people. It was very difficult to get anybody to take any interest in it, partly, of course, because President Museveni's Uganda became something of a darling of the international aid world. Um, Museveni's government was the first government to receive large-scale debt cancellation from the World Bank. The, the United, United Kingdom, the United States, poured aid resources into Uganda. 
And so the conflict in the north was largely out of the gaze of the international community, though some of us who went there from time to time were deeply shocked to see what was occurring. Things began to change when Jan Eglund visited um, the region in November 2003 and was astonished by what he saw. He described it as a moral outrage. And that scrutiny from an Undersecretary under General of the United Nations began to change things. A group of American uh, graduates um, uh, visited the area, they were very young at the time, and made a rather sensational film called Invisible Children, and a follow-up film some years later called Connie 2012, which has had a, a massive impact, had a massive impact in increasing interest in this region and what was going on. I mean, much of what they presented in the film was highly inaccurate, but nevertheless, it was one of the most successful campaigns, um, advocacy campaigns ever launched. Um, and it's still, uh, uh, you know, it's, a, um, it's still incredible to think of the effect that that film had, the millions of people who became mobilized, particularly in the United States. And what they were describing was a situation that had emerged in northern Uganda as a consequence of the LRA's attacks and of the Ugandan government's anti-insurgency operations. And this is a photograph taken in 2004, I think it was, of children coming into Gulu town at night to try to escape abduction by the LRA. Vast numbers of them would sleep in the porches of the houses or in the um, mission hospital at Lachor. And most of the population was herded into internal displacement camps. And then returning to these places and spending time there from 2004, these places that I'd lived in the 1980s and, and early 90s, it was, it was a really quite harrowing experience for me personally. You know, um, I could remember you know, living in a Choli villages and you know the Choli children would come and jump up, jump all over me when I was writing my field notes and say, you know, what are you doing? Why are you sitting still? It's a very this is a very sort of um, dynamic society where people don't sit quietly. It's a very social society. And um, to see people herded into these settlements at the peak probably close to two million people herded into these kinds of settlements was a, was a truly disturbing thing to see. I mean, those camps were so closely packed that when there was a fire, you had a situation like this and you know, huge numbers of people were burnt to death in their, in their houses. There was almost no sanitation. This, there are some pit latrines. There were pit latrines at this particular camp, but whenever it rained, it overflowed. And these are pigs here eating human excrement. This is a camp that I visited in 2004. MSF had worked there um, at that time and had found a crude mortality rate of 10 per 10,000 per day. I mean, that's that's truly amazing when you think of it. Um, that's the kind of rate of 
you know, that kind of mortality rate you'd expect to see in a, you know, in a very serious famine situation. Now these aid these um, camps were supplied by aid agencies. In fact, initially the camps had to some extent been constructed with support from international aid agencies because the aid agencies wanted to provide food near people's homes rather than in the towns. And so people were forced out of the towns into places near their um, rural homes, but then when they were there, forced into these displacement camps. And food was distributed like this, and then at night time, the LRA would come in to collect their share. And for a young man like this one in the middle here, his name is Sunday, quite a well-known figure eventually, his photograph taken soon after he was abducted from his home by the Lord's Resistance Army and given his first automatic rifle, eventually um, moving up the ranks in the LRA to become um, a, a captain. And Sunday, like many others who were taken um, from those camps where life was truly horrific, the bush was a place of fear and a place where moral norms were turned upside down, but also a place of opportunity. And thousands of young people were taken by the LRA, um, many of them never to be seen again. Um, something like 30,000 children have eventually returned. And for a young man like that, being in the LRA, unlike being in the camps, made it possible to get married and have a family. I mean, marriage was marriage by capture. These women were also abducted and given to commanders. They were, I think we would have to say, raped according to normal criteria. But marriage by capture is something that has existed for a long time in this region. And it's striking that some of the women who were taken, by no means all, of course, embraced life with the LRA and still talk about it with a considerable degree of nostalgia. But one shouldn't underestimate in any way how horrific LRA attacks were. Um, this is a picture of the LRA at the time, LRA combatants at the time of the peace negotiations, and I made a small window there. I won't, and I won't blow it up. That's one of the last LRA attacks at Bagak, Bagak camp in May 2004, where the LRA took some 20 women with their babies on their back out of the camp, lined them in the grass, lined them up in the grass and smashed their brains in um, to create terror and to force people um, to kind of remain in the camps and to, to you know, sustain the levels of insecurity that went on pretty much consistently until around 2006, when the LRA were drawn into peace negotiations. Here's one of the children returning from the LRA, being invited to draw pictures of the attacks that she was involved in. Now, partly because of all the interest from the United Nations and UNH and NGOs from the um, from 2004 onwards, 2003-2004, suddenly there was all sorts of interest in how this terrible situation could be could be um, dealt with. 
trying to negotiate with the LRA seemed extremely difficult. But many um, activists, many Acholi activists, but particularly many international NGOs, became very interested in the possibility of Acholi ways of healing or Acholi ways of reconciling populations. And one particular ritual became um, a focus of considerable attention, matter or put, the drinking of a bitter root, kind of eating of a, of a, of a sheep together so that the, the victims and the perpetrators would come to some sort of reconciliation. Now, I'm showing you this picture to give you an idea of what this was like in 2004, 2005, when aid agencies were focused on these issues. And, you know, I've written at length on Acholi rituals and how they were co-opted into these processes and what the rituals actually meant and what international agencies thought they might mean. But I'm, I'm showing you this because in trying to come to terms with what has happened in northern Uganda, there's been a huge amount of emphasis on some kind of more positive past, some kind of peaceful existence in the past before all these upheavals occurred, and a considerable degree of romanticization and, if you like, um, invention of tradition. With aid agency funding, a paramount chief of the Acholi was established for the first time, and a council of Rodi anointed ritual chiefs. And attempts were made to create some sort of system whereby Acholi people could become involved in some sort of reconciliation process built upon ideas um, from the past. One of the things that was very striking about this, as an anthropologist who'd worked on this area for a long time, was the degree to which that past bore almost no relationship to the world that I'd observed in the 1980s, but also didn't draw upon any of the existing literature. It was almost as though that literature didn't exist. At the time this photograph was taken, there was a project going on being um, funded through the Catholic Church, actually, based at one of the missions in Gulu area in northern Uganda, one of the big missions. And the people who were working there were collecting Acholi rituals so that they could be codified into some kind of booklet on Acholi customs that might become part of an Acholi reconciliation process. And they were completely unaware that Father Kratzelara had been based at those same, that same mission in the 1940s and 50s and had written a three-volume book um, called the Luo, which dealt with the Acholi people, in one volume of which actually wrote about all these rituals as they were at that time. There was complete, um, the, the people working, the, including researchers turning up and working at this time, seemed to have no awareness at all that there had been any previous research done in this part of Uganda. And so that kind of takes us back in time. Frank Gerling wrote an ethnography of the Acholi people um, based upon fieldwork in the late 1940s. That book was published rather bizarrely. It was eventually published by Her Majesty's stationery office. I didn't find anybody in northern Uganda 
in the Acholi in northern Uganda, who was aware of that book. And even some of the researchers who visited seemed completely oblivious to it. And when I mentioned it to them, some of them, particularly some of, the, some of, some of those coming from the United States, were a bit upset that there was this previous ethnography that perhaps they ought to have read before they'd come out to start doing their own fieldwork. The, one of the problems with the HMS, the HMS Stationary Office version of the book is it's actually quite hard to read. The, the print is very small. But it is quite intriguing. It was quite intriguing to me why Frank Gerling's book had been first printed in such a strange way, but also um, was so, so, so poorly distributed, so few people had ever seen it. Also, um, when I asked um, Peter Worsley about it some years ago and asked him if he'd, knew, if he'd known Frank Gerling when he was at Cambridge, he said, yes, he knew Frank very well. And he told me that, that Frank had been persecuted because of his political views. And so I became rather interested in what had happened to Frank Gerling and why his book had been set to one side. I did have a chance to actually speak to him on the telephone not so long before he died. Um, but by that point, he was um, maybe a little bit confused about what had happened and also perhaps his memories of northern Uganda had become, well, poisoned by experience that had um, occurred subsequently. But here's a picture of Frank Gerling at the time when he went to northern Uganda. Gerling had been a uh, activist in the 1930s and had um, Spanish Civil War um, uh, as a Marxist. Um, so that was, that was the underlying history to his problems. He was a veteran of the Spanish Civil War when, um, when the Second World War broke out, and during the Second World War he was in the Indian Army. And that history made him rather different to other British anthropologists who went out to Africa um, after the Second World War. After the Second World War, he, like many others, many other demobilized soldiers, um, studied a degree. Um, that's where he met Peter Worsley and Jack Goody, who are there on the left. Um, and he, he did a degree um, at Cambridge in anthropology. I mean, he, it's interesting, it was interesting talking to um, Peter Worsley about it before he died, and he remembered Frank very well not least because Frank was married to Elizabeth. They had married in the 1930s, and Elizabeth had also been involved in the Spanish Civil War. Um, in fact, they had uh, a bit of a bomb that almost killed them when they were hiding under a table when they were being bombed by Mussolini's planes. Um, so this rather you know, interesting history in the military was a, an important aspect of Girling's relationships with others who had recently been demobilized. Um, but Girling was a bit set apart from the others. I mean, Peter Worsley said that he seemed a bit mature, partly because he was married, but he did also say that Girling was rather good at um, playing with the artifacts in the, um, 
ethnography museum and he would um, take the uh, the spears out into the quadrangle and hurl them over the um, the top of the wall um, fortunately not killing any cyclists on the other side Girling then um, when he was at Cambridge he, he was pretty disparaging about the experience he'd had at Cambridge but he said that there was one and, and, and something that Peter Worsley said as well there was one particular lecturer who was really um, astonishingly good compared with all the others and that was Evans Pritchard who visited from Oxford and so when Girling graduated he applied to do a doctoral dissertation with Evans Pritchard in Oxford and Evans Pritchard was his PhD supervisor so Girling then was one of the first postgraduates funded by the Colonial Social Science Research Council in 1947. And he, um, after some discussion with, um, with Evans Pritchard and with, with Max Gluckman, actually, he decided to focus on the Acholi people of northern Uganda. He arrived in northern Uganda in uh, the late 1940s, I think he actually arrived in 48, um, and Elizabeth joined him some months later. This is a picture of northern Uganda from Gulu at, at that time, um, where, of course, it was the basis of the protectorate administration in that part of the country. One of the um, qualities of Girling's work, which kind of sets it apart from others who were writing at that time, was that he was very focused on social changes going on. I mean, as a, as a Marxist, he was very interested in, in history, very interested in trying to understand the past of this region in relation to what he was observing in the present, but also commenting on the changes that were occurring in um, this kind of late period of protectorate rule. So the photographs, for example, in his book, um, present people wearing European clothes and he comments on the effects of education and the the changing nature of a Choli society. In fact in some ways his his thesis um, is as much sociological as it is anthropological and he collected a huge amount of um, statistical data which is presented in, in, in the thesis and was eventually reprinted in, 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 in the book. Um, he also has in the thesis a considerable amount of historical um, discussion. He was sceptical about oral history, but very interested in seeing how oral historians um, wrote about the past in relation to what he could find out from other sources. So the thesis is a little bit like some of the, uh, unlike some of the others that were produced at that time, in that it has a strong historical focus, it has lots of statistics in it, and it focuses on processes of change. But Girling got into problems in Uganda. He had met um, Ramakrishna Mukherjee when he was at Cambridge, and he invited his Indian friend to come to visit him in northern Uganda. And I think the, the prospect of an Indian Marxist with Girling traveling around all over northern Uganda, potentially um, stirring up trouble, 
was a bit too much for the protectorate authorities. Although they didn't speak to him openly about it, it appears that MI5, or possibly what has become MI6, um, became involved in, um, in observing his activities. And after some 10 months of being in northern Uganda, Gerling was basically expelled. And so his thesis, partly reason perhaps why he has so much history in his thesis and he draws on all the other sources that he can find, um, was, was constrained by the amount of fieldwork that he could do. Um, and uh, this relationship with um, uh, Ramakrishna um, remained quite a close Tim, you muted yourself. Sorry, Tim, you muted, so we can't hear you. You have to unmute yourself. No, we can't hear you. Um, one sec, I'm trying to unmute you. I can't unmute you, you'll have to You'll have to do it. Yes. No, no, we can't hear you. Should be at the top right of your. Tim, the mute thing is next to the leave button next to the share. There's a there's a mic sign that you need to press. He's actually gone offline. Um, OK. I guess uh, I guess we just wait for him <laughs> to reappear. I can still see that you're there, Tim. It's just that you're um, you're muted. Perhaps Helen has a an answer to this particular problem. Right. The problem might be the screen sharing preventing him from seeing the unmute button. So if you exit the screen share, it might be possible. Okay. I'll, to take, I'll take control back of the presentation. Does that help, Tim? Nope. Interesting. Help. It's I'm not able to. I'm not able to unmute him. Unfortunately, I think it might be case of him to go out and in again. Okay. Do you want to do that, Tim? I think that that might be the best option, Tim, for you to leave and then rejoin just as you did previously by clicking on the meeting in the app. David, you might want to stop sharing because you might need to restart sharing when he comes back. Okay. Let him in. I'm back. Tim. Am I back? Hi, yes. Tim. We can hear you. We can hear you. Yeah. So, on uh, 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 my thing, it had nothing about muting or anything. No, weird. Sorry. 
so it, it I don't know what that was. All right. No. Are you still able to control the presentation, Tim? Uh, let me see. Um, mm -hmm. uh, take control. Take control. And then, oh, yeah. there go. Excellent. Okay. All right. Cool. That's just well, a weird so glitch. Where are we time-wise? Okay. All right. So if I go on till about, well, I don't know, can I... How long? How much longer should I meet? I mean, we've got lots of um, delays in all this, but I mean, how? I long know, but and, and we all want to really hear um, uh, 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 about Arcot Bitek as well. So. All right, I'm going to Arcot very soon. Yeah. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. All right. So um, let me let me uh, let me try to move over, um, uh, girling a bit uh, a bit quicker now. So. Um, uh, Ramakrishna remained friends with Girling after he went back to the UK, but he too had lots of problems in 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 Britain. I mean, one of the things is that to, to bear in mind is that at the time when Girling and um, Ramakrishna were at Cambridge in the 1940s, the Cold War hadn't really begun. But the, by the time Girling went out to Uganda, it had begun in earnest. And during the 1950s. Um, neither of them could get jobs in anthropology departments. Um, eventually, uh, um, Gurley was able to complete his thesis, but he felt that it was largely kind of constrained by the conditions in which he was working, and uh, his relationship with Evans Pritchard became quite tense, although Evans Pritchard did, in the end, um, support him to complete his thesis. Um, Later on, though, Girling, reflecting back at that time, talks about the way, because he got a job in a sociology department in the end, he talks about how unhappy he was with the publication, um, partly because the colonial office demanded edits um, to, to not to publish certain sections, but also because he'd come to view the kind of functionalism um, which he associated with it as being um, a kind of um, uh, 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 an, well, an aspect of colonial relationships, um, and so you know he became a sort of he became interested in Marxist anthropology, but was primarily focused on sort of sociological work, mainly in the UK in his later in his later life. Became was still an activist. Um, so let me push on here. Is it, is it working? Yeah. Okay. So, just to give some examples of you know what was taken out of his book, Girling describes a, a centralised and all-powerful British administration. He describes the social life of the district officer. He talks about this golf course in Gulu Town, the swimming bath, and he talks about the club where his Indian friend wasn't really supposed to go. Um, uh, and you know, he talks about the kind of the, the overt racism that he encountered amongst most of the British administrators at the time. Some of who had quite absurd ideas about um, African mentalities. Um, he also makes the point that that most of the British administrators he came across very much like the um, the Acholi who were not educated and were not wearing clothes because they 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 didn't like. Um, half-civilized uh, Africans. So, you know, quite strong criticism. So you can kind of see why the colonial office uh, wanted them wanted them taken out of the, the, the thesis. Um, I'll skip over this. I mean, Girling in the 70s was writing about how 
the, the, the anthropology that it was taught in Oxford seemed so out of um, sync with the, poli the political realities of the time and what's happened subsequently. Um, and, you know, writing in the 70s, he talks about how many social anthropologists have become involved in the revolutionary standpoint. I don't know how many were, but, you know, it's a, um, he was writing at a moment when he thought that that was the way things were moving. Um, he, he, um, he had a long life, of course, and he was aware of what happened in the Choli area after his, his visit. But um, he, he, he never really re-engaged with his work on the Acholi. I think those of you who have a chance to read the book would be really surprised actually at how good it is. And when you compare it to other studies from that period, from looking at Middleton and Southall's work, I think it, you know, it has stood the test of time. It is a, his, his, his thesis w w was written at a particular moment, but even at that time, he was breaking down the boundaries of the anthropological present and was trying to sort of move to a, a, a different way of thinking about the colonial experiences in, 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 in Africa at the time. So I do hope people do have a chance to have a look at it and it's, in its newly published form, it's much more readable than in its um, earlier form, and the bits that were taken out by the colonial office are put back in. But let me now move to this, and I'm going to do something really problematic, well, maybe problematic, I don't know. I'm going to try and play this YouTube clip. Will that be possible? Let's see. Maybe that's pushing everything to the too far. No. It's not working, is it? Okay, so I was going to pay you a YouTube clip of the barefoot, the barefoot cranes in England in 1956. So the barefoot cranes, who the Uganda visited England in 1956 and played a series of games. Their first one was against um, Watford, if I think it was, and they lost 10-1. And they played... Um, bare feet in that game in the mud so it's hardly surprising that they lost um, but they got better um, they arrived on the 23rd of August um, and they left on the 5th of October after playing 11 games almost all the players played barefoot except when it got really muddy um, and as I say they did get better and on the 26th of September they defeated the United Kingdom Olympic football team. They also beat Leeds, actually. Um, so they're a famous football team. And, and I interviewed the last surviving member of them um, a couple of years ago. They also had a member who, member of the team who by September had absconded. Um, he didn't play in that match. And his name was Akop Patek. Akop Patek had um, been at school at the time when Gerling was writing his thesis in the, uh, at the end of the 1940s, early at the beginning of the 19, uh, 1950s. Um, and he did read um, Gerling's thesis when he was in Oxford. He was a school teacher. He hadn't done a degree, but he was a very good footballer and a very good dancer. Um, and he got a job, he, he got a job teaching in a school, um, but he also played football and he was in that football team that came to England in 1956. Once he got to England, he looked for ways of going back to university and he managed to talk his way into a postgraduate course in Bristol. 
Um, he was actually taught by Wendy James's dad. And from that position, he managed to talk his way into a uh, law degree in Aberystwyth. Akot said he, he studied law because Milton Obote, the first um, uh, um, um, head of state in Uganda, who'd actually been at school with him, had studied law, and he wanted to show Obote that anybody could do it. And so he went to Aberystwyth and studied law, and then he worked for a while at the, in The Hague at the uh, International Court of Justice, but decided it wasn't for him and that he wanted to study anthropology. Already by that time, he was beginning to publish poetry, and he'd written Werpeloino, uh, the uh, a truly language version of what later became Song of Luino. Um, but he turned up in Oxford and uh, and, um, uh, and 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 wrote about um, the customs of the Acholi people for his for his be lit. Um, this is a picture of uh, dancers at, at Gulu in uh, actually at the place that Evans uh, that um, uh, the Akot Bitek. Um, uh, nearby where Akotvitek uh, ran uh, cultural events when he became very involved in these sorts of processes. Um, and, and later, I mean, af after he left Oxford, he actually became head of the um, Ugandan Cultural uh, Centre in Kampala. While he was at Oxford, he was writing Song of Luino, and it was um, eventually published in English. And it had a huge impact. I mean, it was a book that, uh, a poem, it still is one of the most important pieces of African creative writing. It's rather scathing about education. I mean, Luino is an African woman who's explaining how, um, how her husband appears to have been effectively castrated by his education. Um, and uh, he's rather scathing about the effects of education, you know, perhaps reflecting on some of his experiences in Oxford. Um, but he's also um, scathing about um, what happened with respect to independence. And he, some of the latter parts of the poem become almost apocalyptic in their ways of describing the betrayal of independence, the betrayal of Uhuru. Um, he also at various points in the, in the poem um, describes, doesn't say their names, but describes certain individuals, one of whom was actually Idi Amin, the dangerous uh, army commander, which is one of the reasons why he, he had to effectively become an exile um, from, from Uganda. Idi Amin tried to kill him more than once. But Akot is also well known for his, in certain circles, for his essays, for his, his critical essays. His books, his you know, non-poetry books have become quite difficult to, to get hold of. These are perhaps the two best known of his uh, longer writings, The Religion of the Central Row and The um, African Religions in Western Scholarship, both of which are... Um, associated with his um, studying of anthropology in Oxford and also his views about the experience of, um, of, of having um, encountered uh, analysis of, of religions um, from anthropologists in, um, in the United Kingdom in the, in the 1960s, 50s and 60s. 
when when those books were published, Aidan Southall referred to the religion of the central low in this way. He says, here is the beginning of that presentation of African culture by Africans for Africans, as well as for the world of foreign scholarship, without apology or dissimulation, for which we have been waiting so long. And Ali Mazrui, writing about African religion and Western scholarship, said, here surely is Africans' indignation at its most eloquent. Now, in, in that book, um, Akot is, is pretty scathing about anthropology. He actually asks, is there a place for social anthropology in an African university? In my opinion, the answer is no. The departments of social anthropology in African universities were campaigning grounds for Western anthropologists. African universities can ill afford to maintain these bases. Africans have no interest in and cannot indulge in perpetuating the myth of the primitive. So in many ways, African religion in Western scholarship is an assault on anthropology and also on the way in which Christian theologians have tried to co-opt African values, African ways of thinking about religion into kind of neo-Christian or proto-Christian ways of thinking. I'd also want to mention this other piece, that um, an essay that Akot wrote. He actually wrote this in 1964, but it's been republished in different places subsequently, and it is also um, contained in this republication of um, Akot and, um, and, and Gerling's work. This essay on Acholi love, and I mention this because this essay highlights the fact that marriage by capture is a possibility. And there are parts of this book that could be read in some ways as justifying what could be understood as, um, as enforced sexual com um, um, contact. Um, it, it's quite a troubling essay in all sorts of ways um, and well worth reading, but quite relevant in terms of some of the debates that have occurred with respect to the Lord Resistance Army. When um, Ocott was studying in Oxford, he was actually supervised by Godfrey Leonhardt, um, not um, Evans Pritchard, though Evans Pritchard was in fact the examiner of his, of his um, DPhil thesis. I think one of the things it's worth noting is that, um, that his work on sexuality probably also had um, some effect on Evans Pritchard, particularly in the later part of his life. Um, this is a cop reflecting back on that period at, towards the end of his own life. You know, he says that you know he, he used to he used to go out drinking with EPM with the Lernharts, and they obviously had quite a lot of fun together. They're often they're often seen in Oxford pubs. And Evans Pritchard told him that you know when he would when he was working among Luo-speaking Shiluk, Shiluk speak a similar sort of, um, a similar um, language to the Acholi people. Um, he said that he would, he would go to the dances and he would follow the lovers to, to see what happened. And on one occasion he was, he was caught and, and, be, and beaten up. Um, and I think if, you know, if, um, Ocott was perhaps more influenced by Evans Pritchard than, he'll, than he lets on, because I think that one can see Evans Pritchard's influence in African religions and Western scholarship. It's probably also true that Evans Pritchard was a bit influenced by Ocott, I mean, particularly in Evans Pritchard's late essays on the Zandi, which have 
a great deal of explicit discussion of of sex, sex um, in them. Um, but uh, Cott's experiences in Oxford were were troubling in that he found it very difficult to cope with the language that people would use to describe Africans, particularly the reference to Africans being primitive. He objected to the way that uh, Godfrey Leonhardt and Evans Pritchard described, uh, described um, African cosmology. Um, he had a very different view. And although he did complete his, his B-Lit and, and, and that was passed, his DPhil was actually, quite astonishingly, actually failed. His initial examiners were um, the linguist uh, Tucker and, and Evans Pritchard. And the examiner's reports say that they, they didn't like his spelling, they didn't like his map, um, and they didn't like uh, his title. What um, Occott had written in his thesis was, um, at the beginning of it, he said that he didn't want to use the term Acholi um, in the thesis because he felt like the, the categorization of the Acholi was a, a colonial introduction, wasn't, wasn't something that had come from the people themselves, it was probably associated with Chol, the word for black, and probably came from the discussions with translators from southern Uganda who were lighter skinned in the early colonial period. And so he objected to using these tribal labels. And he referred to the Jopalwo, the, the people of Luo, as being a collective group. Um, and so that's why um, he uses the term the religion of the central Luo rather than the Acholi. But the examiners felt like he was not being clear about which bits in his thesis was really ethnographic work that he'd observed, which were his opinion or his analysis or his interpretation, and which were, to some extent, not necessarily fictitious, but were an, amalgam an amalgamation of his growing up experiences. And so they were, they were wanting him to be clearer about the ethnographic um, process and how he had come to know what he described. And also they objected to the way in which he amalgamated all these different examples that he, that he included in the thesis under this idea of the, uh, the people of Luo. Um, so they referred it and asked for some changes. Um, he was examined again, a second examination occurred in 1970, which is the year that Evans Pritchard retired. Um, and so he was replaced by, um, by Gene Buxton. Um, and the second examiners felt that the map was rubbish. They didn't like his map. Um, they still said, well, they don't really like the title. And they referred it again. They referred the thesis again. Um, but then the university didn't allow him the right to resubmit it for the third time. So in effect, he was then failed. And so Oxford actually managed to fail the PhD thesis of perhaps Africa's most important poet. That thesis is sitting on the library shelf in the anthropology library in Oxford. I, I was rather surprised to find it there when I was um, looking for Girling's thesis and finding the bits that had been cut by the colonial office. Um, it was sitting on the shelf as though it had passed. Um, 
but it turns out that that is the failed thesis sitting on the library shelf. The text, however, is basically the same as um, uh, the religion of the central woe, which Ocott published the following year by the East, um, in East Africa. So let me draw some of these points to an end now. Um, the you know the war in northern Uganda has has abated. Um, this is a picture of Joseph Connie during the peace negotiations in 2006. Um, when we were working in northern Uganda, we, you know, my research team was contacted by members of the LRA and peace negotiations occurred the following year. Um, and the LRA's activities in northern Uganda have uh, basically ended from that point, 2006 onwards, and moved to other parts of Central Africa. Here's Connie again in the peace negotiations. But negotiations failed and the Connie is still at large um, and the LRA is still operational in um, parts of South Sudan and northern Uganda. Uh, northern, um, um, sorry, parts of South Sudan and uh, eastern, eastern um, DRC and Central African Republic. Um, I've already mentioned how there's been this sort of obsession with tradition in northern Uganda at the moment. This is a matter of put ritual. And the fact that these books by Cot, Batek and Pabatek uh, and Frank Gurley are not available does seem to be you know, a real problem. I was you know, discussing with people in Agulu University and, and they were completely unaware that these texts existed. Um, and so it seemed very important to try to uh, make them available so that they could be used in the region to discuss um, the present situation. Of course, some of this campaigning in northern Uganda has been focused on the International Criminal Court. Here's the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Um, part of a campaign against him in, in Sudan at the time when an issue, a warrant was issued for the president of, of Sudan. And lots of antipathy towards the ICC amongst some groups in, in northern Uganda, which is part of the reason why I got drawn into the, the prosecution process. And I, I suppose, you know, thinking about these kind of colonial encounters in Oxford in the late protectorate era and the Coptec's experiences and Girling's experiences too, I suppose one might raise the question, why was a British, white British academic asked to be the so-called expert witness at the beginning of the trial of Dominic Ongwen, the LRA commander at the ICC? It would have been a bit strange, I think, if at the Milosevic trial they'd asked Grace Akello from Gulu University. Um, uh, so I felt quite troubled about it at the time. You know, I did it partly because, um, uh, well, because I was encouraged to do so by by some Ugandan friends. And I, I after I after the uh, I was uh, was at the trial, I was on TV in Uganda. I went back to I went to Uganda and met with people in the north, people involved in. In, 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 the, um, in the campaigning against the ICC, as well as those who, who felt like it was potentially a good idea. And there was quite a lot of discussion about why I would be drawn into that, that, that role. And I suppose it does, it does raise the kind of the legacy of these kind of colonial encounters. But 
uh, as I said to people in, in there, well, who, who, who else would have done it? Because, of course, if a Ugandan had done it, they would have been accused of, well, in all sorts of ways, by the, by the 70s government or by relatives of um, people involved in the LRA. So it was a sort of a way of getting the trial going. Um, anyway, people might have a some observations about that and what's happened in well north in northern uganda now well that this is a, this is the old clubhouse that girling described it used to be the place where europeans went and africans are not allowed to go we're not allowed to go it's now the the gulu uh, cultural center here's the old colonial tennis court that girling described um it's next to a latrine which is behind those um fencing at the end there it's kind of fallen into decay obviously but they've kept it almost like a kind of a a relic of the old protectorate period um and so it, it's still sitting there and they they cut the grass on it regularly though obviously no one actually plays tennis anymore and here's a picture of a cockpitex a picture of a cockpitex on the wall one of the greater choli heroes for his poetry but his essays, his ethnographic essays, are largely unknown. And here's a performance that occurred um, at the time when we were discussing these books, the, the, these works by Girling and, and a, a Cockpitek, and we had a performance of Song of Luino by, um, by, 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 by Ugandan artists and his, his young woman acting out the role of Luino. Gulu itself has become a very different place since the war. There's now a coffee hut where you can get a cappuccino. There's even a supermarket. So it's almost like all these things have been forgotten about. Um, lots of visitors from the United States, partly as a consequence of the Invisible Children uh, campaigns, looking for, the in, looking for the invisible children, who are not very invisible most of the time. And the Copitech here being celebrated at McCary in 2016, 50 years after the publication of Song of Luino, been translated finally into Uganda, the language of southern Uganda. And this is the book which was mentioned at the beginning, where I've um, been able to um, persuade a publisher, this lit, agreed to do it, to publish Frank Gerling's The Choli of Uganda, including the, the censored passages. And the book also includes a copy text, Religion of the Central Luo, which is basically his failed defil, African Religions in Western Scholarship, his um, essay, Acholi Love, and African Aesthetics. The one thing I'd say about the Acholi Love essay was that it has been quite important in the discussions with the International Criminal Court. The ICC were felt that it would be very difficult to secure a conviction for rape. And so there was the prospect of Dominic Ongwen not being tried for rape. Um, and the argument was that it was hard to show that the women who had been given to him as an LRA commander um, understood their experience as rape, partly because of this idea of marriage by capture. Also that many of those women who were given to Wong Wen refer to him as their husband. And in fact, you know, one very controversial thing that's occurred is that 
Ong um, Wen has been given uh, conjugal rights while he's been in prison in The Hague. And one of the women who was given to him while he was in the bush fighting with the LRA um, was flown out from Uganda and uh, um, spent time with him in prison in The Hague. And she has now had a baby since she returned to Uganda. And so it's created some quite serious issues about how rape is understood in international criminal law and how it's applied in this case. And so one of the well, one of the interventions that, that, that I've been involved in and, and, and um, some of my PhD students have been involved in has been trying to dis introduce the possibility using using this earlier work on the Acholi and also our more recent field work to to show how ideas of consent are indicated by Acholi women and to make a case for rape. So we don't yet know whether or not, we haven't yet heard the verdict, we're going to hear it in the next few weeks, I think, but a case for rape was made. And although that draws upon a cop detects Acholi love um, um, art, uh, um, article in, in, in important ways in thinking about um, how consent occurs, um, We've also been able to draw on other work by Cot and others to be able to show how, how consent is allocated. So that's the situation that's ongoing. Anyway, that's the book. And there's the cover there, which is by one of our artists in residence at the Furos Lounge Centre for Africa. Um, so thanks very much. That's it. Brilliant. Thanks very so much, Tim. Um, so, I, 